How is it possible for our pain to become our gain? Andrea's story illuminates this transformation. Welcome to episode 367 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Stephanie, Gayla, Shannon, Claire, Gina, and Amy. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Stephanie, Gayla, Shannon, Claire, Gina, and Amy for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer. I am your host today. And joining me today is Andrea. Welcome to The Recovery Show, Andrea. Thank you for having me. Pumped to be here. We'd like to open with a reading, and you've picked one that I'm not familiar with, so go for it. Yeah, and I can provide a little bit of context later on on where this is coming from and my kind of personal connection to it. This is from a book called Your Divine Lens, The Secret to Finding Purpose, Healing, Grief, and Living in Alignment with Your Soul. It is written by spiritual intuitive Sue Frederick. So I'm going to read two different passages. Here's the first one. The moment that you see that your greatest shame your greatest pain is also your greatest gift. You'll understand why you're here and who you are. Love your pain and fear. Embrace your darkness. It will lead you to your gifts, your courage, and your divinity. It will open your heart. Love the entire story of your imperfect life, especially the grotesque mistakes and ugly self-doubt. Release your need for perfection in anyone or anything. Love the rose along with its thorns. These are the same thorns that live in your heart alongside the gift of your boundless love. Become the person who loves the thorn and the gift in everyone, including yourselves. Know that one can exist without the other. Doing this will heal you and it will save the life of everyone you meet. And then the second reading. When we use our divine lens to see what lies beyond the surface, we realize that everyone experiences pain throughout life and especially during childhood. Whether we felt unloved, inadequate, rejected, unlovable, impoverished, or abused, we all grow up hungry in one way or another. This hunger creates our desire to evolve. You choose to be born into the family with the perfect dysfunctional challenges that push you in exactly the way that you needed to be pushed to help you break negative patterns you may have carried for lifetimes. The ego says this isn't true, that many people had it better than you and many people had it worse. Both statements are correct, but everyone's childhood was perfectly designed for their highest good. Look deeply and you'll see the sole story behind everyone's beautiful and terrible life. Your friend who was raised by brilliant, successful parents struggled with crippling self-doubt because she felt unworthy compared to family members. Confidence is the lesson this soul came to learn in this lifetime. Your coworker, who was raised in foster homes and abused as a child, struggled to find the grace in each moment of pain to embrace her wisdom in order to thrive. 
She found courage because it was her only option. It was her soul's mission to find light in the midst of darkness. When you view your childhood from the ego lens, you may see a tragic story of injustice where you're a victim. The ego mind will tell you because of your suffering, you have a right to be angry, desperate, afraid, or cruel. You may spend much of your life with this paralyzing viewpoint until you hit a crisis. When your pain is great enough, you may finally choose to shift into your divine perspective. You'll realize how perfectly you chose your childhood and those relationships so that you could find your divinity. Look beyond the surface and embrace the wisdom of your soul. This is your soul story, and it's the only perspective that matters. Your ego tells you otherwise, but your soul story is the true one. It empowers you. It's the viewpoint you'll realize at the moment of your final breath. It's pretty powerful. (laughs) The opening sentence is the thesis that we're going to talk about today, I guess. It is. Your greatest shame is your greatest pain and your greatest gift. And your greatest gift. That reminds me of when I was early in recovery in Al-Anon. And I would hear people say, I'm grateful for the alcoholics in my life. And I would think, how the hell? (laughs) Because at that point, the alcoholic in my life was my greatest shame and my greatest pain. And I was not Uh seeing any kind of gift. Not at all. How did you come to this? What is the story that brings you here? Almost four years ago now, at nine years sober, I found myself in even more pain than I was on day one of sobriety. And it was nine years sober, but nine years of toxic, painful relationships with emotionally unavailable and often alcoholic men. Yes, I found myself at nine years sober, leaving work at 11 in the morning to go pull my boyfriend out of bar. But it was through this pain that I came to terms with the true impact that my upbringing had on me. I had always known that my childhood had been less than ideal, but what it talks about in this reading, I also knew that other kids had had it way worse than I had. I was never physically abused. I was never sexually abused. All of my needs had always been accounted for. Most to my ones had been accounted for. So yes, I knew that things hadn't been great. But like I said, I also knew that other kids had it way worse than I had. And I definitely did not think that what I had experienced classified as trauma or abuse. It was through this emotional bottom at nine years that I came to terms with the true impact that my upbringing had had on me. And that was the culprit. My unresolved childhood pain was the catalyst to this crazy, all these really painful, horrible relationships. And it was the reason why things weren't getting any better. I saw all of my other friends who also, you know, we usually come into recovery with broken pickers. I like to call it broken picker syndrome. Yes. And so I saw all my other friends' pickers improve and mine was not. And not only was my picker not improving, my behaviors, my feelings, my thoughts in each relationship was getting worse and worse and worse. And what I came to realize is because I was essentially living in a trauma response every time that I was in a relationship. 
So I have this profound experience of, of realizing that this is the root of my issues. So I sought the help I so desperately needed. And I've spent the last three plus years working on these issues. But one of the other big aha moments that I had from this bottom was the realization that not once had I ever considered what a fulfilling career would look like for me. All I had cared about was finding a man and getting married and having kids. And not once had I considered what would a fulfilling life outside of that look like for me? So not only did I embark on this journey to heal from my unresolved childhood pain, I also embarked on this journey to find my higher calling, to figure out why the fuck was I put on this earth? And so the past three plus years, I've also been on that journey. And what I've realized, and so the reading that I read, Sue Frederick, so she is a spiritual intuitive. She's actually a career intuitive. So I reached out to her to get some guidance on a career path because it's just been a struggle for me. Basically, what I learned throughout my journey is that part of my calling is to help people with these issues related to these issues of their dysfunctional upbringing. So I guess that what I should have said is that I realized that I was an adult child, right? And your guests last week talked about being an adult child. For those of you unfamiliar, the original term was adult children of alcoholics, but it's now since been expanded to adult children of dysfunctional families. So there are so many different family types that can qualify as dysfunctional. It doesn't have to include substances. But what happened was that my higher power kept placing people in my life to help them with these issues. And for me, like doing this work for the first year and a half after I hit that bottom, I saw my therapist twice a week for a year and a half. I still see her, but the transformation was so profound for me. I just feel like there are so many people out there who are probably oblivious to the fact that the recurring issues that they encounter in life, whether it's in relationships, in their family, at work, is probably the result of unresolved childhood pain. The universe just kept putting people in my life to help them with these issues. I guess about nine months ago, I decided that I wanted to start a podcast and I wanted to start a podcast about this issue. So in March of this year, I launched Adult Child, and it is a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. It is raw. It is filterless. It's funny. It's vulnerable. But my biggest, what are my intentions in creating this? One is to reach those who probably are oblivious to the fact that they are an adult child, because I've had so many messages from people saying, I had no idea that this is my problem. Two, to let people know There is nothing shameful or embarrassing about growing up in a dysfunctional family. Three, like it said in the reading, to embrace our stories, our pain, our shame, because that is the shit that makes us who we are. It gives us depth. It gives us meaning. It allows us to experience life on a deeper, more authentic level. And then lastly, to find humor in our stories. We need to be able to find humor in the crazy shit that we do because humor is healing and we aren't unique. So I just lay it all out there. I tell all of my embarrassing stories because 
it's funny. Like we need to be able to relate. We need to be able to laugh. We need to be able to not take life so seriously. And I think that when we can find humor and compassion for ourselves, that also allows us to grant that to other people. So that's my spiel. (laughs) Wow. Where to start? Maybe go a little bit deeper into what happened at nine years. What helped you to break all that shit loose? Without unnecessary yeah, detail yeah. that you don't no. want to share. Oh, but no, that that phrase never applies to me. Okay. <laughs> no, I love when people are like, oh, it's okay if I'm being too personal. I'm like, no, that's also kind of part of my story too. And starting this podcast is I, I've had so many profound uh, experiences with strangers, like just people on the bus or whatever, where I just vomit it all out and tell them everything. That's also part of purpose in life is I think to be a bit of an oversharer. Yeah. So everyone should check out my very first episode. And that in, in that I talk about the tale of two Brian's, two guys that I dated named Brian <laughs> that were the catalyst to my adult child healing journey. I dated Brian number one at seven years sober, and it was through that relationship that I realized that my dating issues were related to my childhood. I had this aha moment where I realized that this pain that I was feeling was a feeling that I had felt often as a child, specifically related to my separation anxiety that I had developed with my mother. Mm -hmm. Actually, The first aha moment I had was, you guys, I was like wanting to die. I had been dating this guy for like less than a month and I literally became a non-functioning human. This guy clearly had a drinking problem. It seemed his parents did as well. And so the first aha moment I had was that there is no way that the reaction that I am having right now could actually be about Brian number one. Like, I was acting as if my husband of 30 years had just died. And this was like a guy of like that I'd known for three weeks that ghosted me. And I was like having an emotional breakdown and couldn't go to work. So that that was my first aha. That's a bit of a clue, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. So that was the first aha that this isn't about Brian, number one. And then the second aha was this is related to childhood. So then it was a few weeks later, I was at a a 12-step meeting and I heard a woman sharing. She had 30 years sober. And she was talking about how at seven years sober, which is what I had at the time, that she had a horrible emotional bottom related to a relationship in which she realized that it was related to childhood. And she talked about reading this book, Adult Children of of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families. So I, I download the book. I read it. I related to it even more than I did in any other recovery literature that I'd ever read. It was like I was finally reading like all of my thoughts and feelings I was finally seeing written down on paper. So I go back to the same meeting a week later and I see that woman. And so I go up to her and I say that how her sheriff had impacted me and how I had downloaded that book that she had mentioned and that I had read it. And I told her a little bit about Brian number one and these aha moments that I had. And she looks at me and she goes, that's wonderful. But I want to let you know that this is going to take years for you to work through. Simply reading this book is not going to suffice. This will take you years to work through. But I promise if you do the work, You need to treat this as seriously as you did your alcoholism when you were a newcomer. You will get to the other side. And I remember looking at her and thinking, years? Years? (laughs) Lady, I'm 28, basically. Like, I'm basically a senior citizen. I need to get this shit fixed, like, yesterday. But at most, 
a couple of months. And I remember just thinking, God, I really just hope that her childhood was a lot more fucked up than mine was. <laughs> Years? <laughs> so I'm like, okay. So I'm like, I'll read that book and I'll take a year off from dating. And that surely is going to be enough, right? Just like learning you have cancer doesn't make the cancer go away. Simply learning that my dating issues were related to my childhood wasn't sufficient enough to produce any sort of an internal change. Mm-hmm. And so enter Brian number two. I, 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 if I can interject, I'm reminded of the little saying that we don't say it works if you read it. <laughs> exactly. Or you know it. It works if you know it. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work to go to the gym and watch people work out. Oh, darn. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> yeah. Just like it doesn't like work. If I, I wish I could just go to a pizza place and just watch other people eat pizza and I would get the same satisfaction <laughs> from it. There you go. Yeah. So Brian number two comes along. So Brian number two and he comes along. It's quite the story. I don't want to give it away because I want people to listen. But what I will tell you is that I hadn't changed a damn bit. And the next six months of my life were the most painful times of my life. It was through that relationship when I finally hit bottom with that, that I realized that that what I was dealing with was a lot more powerful than what I had assumed. Mm -hmm. And that lady had been right, that I did have to treat this just as seriously as my alcoholism. That's what I did. That's what I did in January of 2018 is when I... I had to start over with a new therapist. Like I had another therapist. I didn't want to start from square one. But what I did was I Googled adult children of the alcoholics, therapists. Mm. And I found my therapist. Her name is Stephanie Brown. She's one of the pioneers of the adult child movement. I reached out to her and I told her about what I was going through. And she goes, well, I don't have any availability, but I have this woman who lives in San Francisco. Go check her out and see if it's good fit. If it's not, call me back. And so then I started working with Mary and Mary saved my fucking life. You're not exaggerating, right? No. I mean, I'm like brought to tears, you know. So it's just been like launching this podcast in March. You know, I had started and stopped so many creative projects over the years and nothing ever came to fruition. And Uh I beat myself up over that so much. But what I realize now is that it was just like all part of my journey and it was all meant to get me to to create this podcast. It's been the most amazing experience of my life. It's really reaching people and hitting people. And I think that this is a topic that's not being discussed as much as it should be. Just about two and a half months after launching, like I was asked to be on Dr. Drew's podcast. And I just can't explain the feeling that I had, like sitting just feet away from Dr. Drew, because it's it's not just about healing for my child. It's about all of this pain and then the subsequent healing and then embarking on this healing journey, but then also embarking on this journey to figure out my true calling in life mm-hmm. and to have that launch and then to have just hundreds of mes- messages from people and then to be sitting you know, next to Dr. Drew. I mean, that was fucking crazy. Like it was a spiritual experience that's, for me. Yeah, that's, wow. That's pretty amazing because of your podcast. It's amazing. Yeah. And people are really resonating with this. And I think part of it is, I think people are just really craving authenticity these days and vulnerability. And I think that people can tell, as I'm sure you can probably tell, I'm just being me. This is how I am like all the damn time. So yeah, like I just really want to inspire people to get vulnerable and real and to not be embarrassed about this stuff. Like 
this is the stuff that's made me who I am. And like, I'm grateful for all that. Like, I'm grateful for all my weirdness and my craziness. Like, normal is boring, in my opinion. It actually says that in the adult child literature. It's like, we view emotionally healthy people as boring. Which, <laughs> I don't think that's a good thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe exactly. not. Maybe mm-hmm. not. <laughs> No, I just mean, I I just like people who have been through stuff. This is like what builds character and strength. And yeah, but that was like a big thing for me is to have this shift. I can talk about it a little bit. And I guess it was in the episode that you listened to. I remember being in a meeting. It was in the height of my Brian number two madness. Mm -hmm. And for me, I don't know if this was ever really said in meetings when I was newly sober, but this is the message that I received when I was newly sober was that life sucks. Then you get sober or you enter recovery or whatever. And then life just gets better. Yeah, like life on life's terms still happens, but pain of our own making like ceases the day that we walk into the rooms of recovery. Right. Yes. I don't know if that's what people were saying, but that's like what I heard. So I just remember sitting in this meeting with nine years and being in so much pain And having so much shame related to that, but it wasn't, I didn't feel, I didn't feel shame about the pain. I felt shame that I was the reason for my pain, Mm. that I could not figure, like, I, cause for years, I just couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. I couldn't figure out why I couldn't do things differently in the next relationship. Like each time promising myself. I'm not going to ignore red flags. I'm not going to ignore red flags. And I had been completely incapable of doing so. And so I just remember sharing that in that meeting, just saying, I feel so much shame that I'm the reason that I feel like shit. And then I had the guy come up to me and he was just like, I know exactly how you feel, but like one day you'll realize that your your biggest pain is is your biggest blessing. And I just remember thinking like, shut the fuck up, dude. I don't want to hear this. But it's true. It's true. And so I just think that's what this book is about, right? So it's called like Finding Your Divine Lens. And basically what she's talking about in this book is putting on your divine lens and in which that pain always serves a purpose in our life, a positive purpose in our life, even if we can't see it at the moment. It is always there for a higher purpose. And that's been my experience. I can't think of a single thing, a uh, painful experience that I've had where now looking back on it, it's so clear to me exactly why it was supposed to happen. So now when I find myself in, in challenging situations, well, I still feel pain. It does help a little bit to realize, okay, like there's a reason for this and this isn't going to serve some sort of higher purpose in my life. It's not always easy to be in that place. No, it is not. I heard somebody say once, and I'm going to probably not get it exactly right what she said, but it was something about, I don't believe everything happens for a reason, but I do believe I can find a purpose in everything that happens. Mm, I love that. And that, that worked better for me than, yeah, God's got a plan. And yeah, I know it feels like shit right now, but it's, gee, thanks. That doesn't help me. But if, if I can look at something that, that is painful, something that is difficult, and if I can ask, what purpose can I take from this? What growth can I take from this? Is this a, this is another fucking learning opportunity, right? Exactly. Confronting it with what, yeah, what is the opportunity to grow and learn from this yeah. situation? Yeah. And that, comes back to what I said at the beginning, that when people would say, yeah, I'm grateful that 
have these alcoholics in my life and I would be like, what the fuck are you talking about? I am grateful that because I love, I live with an alcoholic, that I found recovery, that I found a, a pathway to a life in which I'm much more serene and much happier and I like myself a lot better. And what's interesting, or maybe it's just obvious, I don't know, is that this happened, this started happening. It keeps on happening, but it started happening while I was still living in the chaos of active alcoholism in my home. That drove me to doing the work. If that hadn't been there, I wouldn't have started the work. I, I, I probably have said, I don't know how many times on the podcast, but I don't believe that I've met anybody who came into a 12-step meeting at a high point in their life. I don't know anybody who said, everything's wonderful. I think I'm going to go work these 12 steps. It's not how we got here, most of us, right? Yeah, that's what I say often, too. Going back to what I mentioned earlier about pain of our own making, like, ceases the day that we walk into recovery. Yeah. I think that this is true for most people, but especially those suffering from the family disease of alcoholism. We don't grow unless we're in pain. At least that's been in my experience. It is like my greatest pain has been the catalyst to my greatest transformation. Absolutely. So if I just expect that I'm going to come into recovery and everything's going to be like A-OK, that means that I'm probably not growing that much too. I'm going to pull an Al-Anon book off the shelf here, and I'm just going to read a sentence or two. This is page 46 of the book, How Al-Anon Works. And it's in the reading about step one. It says, Al-Anon does not promise that every alcoholic will get sober or that sobriety will solve our problems or fix our relationships. We may never have the family of our dreams or win the love of those who have no love to give, but our program does offer us hope because it is all about change. When I'm in a meeting and, and we're doing a first step table, one of the meetings that I'm at, we read from that book and when we're doing first step. That reading is pretty harsh. It's all about how we did this and we did that and we couldn't do this and we couldn't do that. And oh my God, we're never going to have the family of our dreams. But there's hope. And it ends with a note of hope. Because if there's no hope, why would we go any further? But there's also truth in that. That simple sobriety, whether it's sobriety from alcohol, sobriety from drugs, or sobriety from codependence, doesn't solve our problems. No, That's what the rest of the steps are about. <laughs> That's, or whatever path that you find that works for you. For me, it was the steps. I didn't understand how that was going to work. I didn't know why people said it worked. As you said, I tried to understand it. And what I found was that I can't understand why the steps work, how the steps work, but I can live it. Mm -hmm. I'm definitely an academic. I suppose I'm a kind of an intellectual. And for the longest time, I figured you had to be able to reason yourself out of anything. I had to be able to reason myself out of anything. And, and what I found in this program is that isn't the way that worked for me. That I had to set no. aside my doubts. I had to set aside my skepticism and just do the work. 
Yeah. I think one of the other misconceptions I had was thinking that the 12 steps would be like the like the fix all for me. And God, a 12 steps worked magic in my life. And I still am an active member and I still practice the steps. But I think I just had this, I had this idea that it would fix everything for me. Like what you're talking about, like reasoning that we can't reason ourselves out of it. Well, I think that adult child of alcoholics, the program is wonderful. I think the literature is phenomenal. I highly recommend that anyone reads this stuff. My opinion for most of us is I really think that is where the core healing occurs is examining this faulty programming that occurs from our childhoods, these ingrained faulty beliefs, fears that we have that probably have no idea that's actually what's going on. But for me, in order for me to to work through this stuff, I had to do it with a therapist because this is trauma. And like I said earlier, I did not think that what I had experienced was trauma because there was never one single catastrophic event. And I didn't think that what I experienced was abuse because my parents never intentionally tried to harm me. But what I realized was that I did experience trauma and that I did experience abuse. And that's a big reason too why I wanted to um, to create the podcast was shine a light on this little t trauma, right? Like the stuff that's not super impactful, like a going to war or a physical or sexual assault, but kind of these these subtle traumas, whether it's emotional neglect or abuse or whatever, that stuff adds up. And actually what research has shown, so I know you talked about complex PTSD last week on the show, what research has shown is that repetitive small traumas, like through your childhood, that's actually more damaging to somebody than one single big T trauma. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think we need to shine a light on on this little teacher because that's that was me, right? Like I did not connect the dots that my my dating issues were related to my childhood because how could it be? Like I was never hit. My parents never told me that I was a piece of shit, you know. Yeah, but it was trauma. It was, there was a lot of trauma. Yeah, I was listening to an AA podcast recently, and I was trying to find it here in the big book. But somewhere in the literature, it says this is not everything. And you may find that you need other kinds of help. And we will never tell you not to do that. Mm-hmm. And I'm paraphrasing the 1935 language that there are things that that we need actual professional help with, whether mm-hmm. it's cancer or whether it's childhood trauma, for a lot of people, a lot of us, just going to a meetings, reading the literature, working the steps, et cetera, is not sufficient. And we need something else. Yeah, it's interesting. So I then had Dr. Drew on my podcast and we were talking about this. And what he was talking about was how he sometimes lumps recovery, and this is from the addiction or alcohol perspective, into two buckets. But he says that for some people, the physical sobriety the going to meetings, that's one level of recovery. Mm-hmm. For some people, that's sufficient, but that's not necessarily full recovery. And then there's others like me, <laughs> where this other shit, like it yeah. becomes just as life-threatening to where I had to go that extra length. But for some people, like, yeah, the 12 steps suffices. But if it doesn't, like for me personally, okay, like you have to do this extra work, but I'm telling you, I view that as such a blessing because I've, it's forced me to do this really deep inner work. And I'm so grateful to have been forced to do that. Yeah. I think that is, there's a common experience there. Talk about the gift of desperation. Things are just so bad that 
I guess I'm going to do this thing that I said I would never do. That's where I was the day that I came to my first 12-step meeting. I was like, I can't go on. Everything that I've been doing has not helped. Maybe has made things worse. I don't know. I'm going to try this thing. I have no idea if it will help, why it will help. And so I went to a meeting. And I was in, in a room for an hour with a bunch of people talking about whatever they were talking about. I don't know. I was in my grief, in my misery. I was crying. At the end of the meeting, what I knew, and I still don't understand how, and I think this gets back to what you were saying about being raw and being vulnerable and being open. I knew that I wasn't alone. That is the thing that I carried away from my first meeting. I wasn't alone. That there were other people who understood. And how I got that from, you know, an an hour's worth of 15 people talking for three minutes each or whatever it was, I have no idea. But I did. And that got me to come back. When you first entered Al-Anon, what was your understanding of alcoholism as a family disease? Uh, No. I mean, I had been through a few friends and family programs Uh over the preceding several years. So I think I had this inkling that alcoholism was a disease, but I really didn't understand it yet. But the family disease concept, again, I'm sure that people had told me about it. I I do. I remember going to a a different friends and family that was was like Saturday morning for four weeks kind of thing. And one of them, they talked about the, the roles of the children in an alcoholic family. And of course, what I thought was, oh my God, we're ruining our kids. So there was a little bit of that, but I don't. I really don't think I had this concept that the alcoholism of one family member affects and infects the whole family. Now, with the Mm -hmm. benefit of the experience of almost two decades, I don't want to jinx it, but almost two decades in recovery, I look at my family of origin. I look in particular at my mother and I say, there is a whole lot of adult child behavior there. That was going to be my next question for you. So what, what about you? What role did you play in your upbringing? I was probably, that. see, the family I grew up in here was pretty functional. There was no alcoholism in my immediate family. Turns out my mother's brother and his son eventually found their ways to recovery. So I know it's in the family there, but it's at least a generation back from me. If I had to pick a role, probably not quite the hero, but I definitely wasn't like the one who just hides in the corner. Yeah, the lost child. I was not the lost child. That might be my sister. It's interesting that you you bring that up about how it had skipped a generation. So T and Dayton, you should read some of her books. They're amazing. But she's also one of the pioneers of the adult child movement. When I had her on my podcast, she was talking about that. And she was like, we say alcoholism, it skips a generation. She was like, it does not skip a generation. It just comes out in other forms, you know? So the thing that, well, the one thing, there's never one thing, okay? But 
a couple of things that that happened in the first year of my recovery in Illinois were yet another friends and family, this time at a residential uh, treatment facility where we would go for a whole day. Mm-hmm. There'd be a lecture and group counseling or whatever, you know, where we had to do the like confrontation thing. Like, this is all the crap you put me through, which, oh my God, that was hard. How old were your uh, kids at this point? They were 11 and 11. And when did they first learn that their mother was suffering from alcoholism? How old were they? Probably younger because she was saying it long before I was willing to admit it. Okay. At least a year or two before that. And I don't know how much of that they understood, but she was definitely telling them. They were not interested in group therapy. They were not interested in the individual therapy that was available. They were not interested. But anyway, at that treatment center, the director of the center was doing the lecture part, and he really came in strongly on this disease concept and the genetics and that sort of thing. So that gave me this intellectual basis for alcoholism is is a disease. It's a different way that the brain functions. But it, it he didn't, as far as I can remember, go into the family aspect. I think from that, it was the Al-Anon literature, and it was people in the meetings talking about their experience that I started to see in my own awakening. I love step 12 talks about a spiritual awakening, which I think the original version that didn't make it into the book was spiritual experience, but they convinced uh, Bill to tone it down because not everybody has the experience, but we all have the awakening. And for me, the awakening was gradual, but I started to see my behavior and I think reflected from other people, like somebody would say, oh, I did this and this and this, and I would be, oh, shit, I do that. And as I started to come out of the fog, I started to see how I had been affected and how my kids had been affected. It was a gradual thing for me, understanding the impact of the alcoholism on everybody around that person. I I remember somebody saying at a meeting, if everybody in this city who's been affected by somebody's alcoholism, actually attended Al-Anon. We'd have to hold our meetings in Michigan Stadium, which holds 100,000 people, right? If one in 10 people are alcoholic and they've affected five other people, how many, how many people does that, you know? But most of us, I didn't see it for 40-something years until I hit my bottom, mm-hmm. until I just couldn't dig any further. If it's not that bad, we just keep on keeping on. I know. Or sometimes when it is that bad, we keep on keeping on. Yeah. My experience was so, I don't don't want to say unique, but different in the sense. So I found out my mom was an alcoholic when I was seven. Like I was Mm -hmm. told that. And so for me, I almost feel like I never not known what alcoholism is. I'm an only child. So I feel like it's like the closest thing that I have to a sibling. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, but then my dad traveled a lot for work and the times that my mom drank the most was when he was gone um, He was gone, and thankfully nothing horrible ever happened. But he knew that she was driving me around drunk, but we, everything looked real pretty and nice from the outside. Oh, yeah. and, and honestly, like I found it all to be quite exciting. I understood <laughs> my way of dealing with the pain 
But yeah, because it was a secret from the rest of the world, right? And my dad used me as his emotional support and confidant. Like when he was home, he would have me search the house for booze with him. I'm like eight years old, taking a paint stick and measuring and monitoring how much was in each bottle of the liquor cabinet and just like sitting on the stairs, listening to them fight and just getting this adrenaline Mm. rush from it. And so one of the laundry list traits for adult child is we become addicted to excitement. And I didn't really understand what that meant, but like, I do. I think that my first addiction was to the chaos within my family. And so it's interesting the way that's shown up in adulthood is anytime I'm like outside and I see there's some sort of like police activity, like I have to stop and watch. I remember this whole one time I'm I'm in an AA meeting and I can hear that there's like all this police activity outside. I had to leave the meeting to go outside and see what the hell was going on. I was the only one that did that. And I'm like, there's got to be some other adult children in in the room. But yeah, that was the way that I dealt with it was the adrenaline. I got high off the adrenaline, but then I became the identified patient though quickly. So you, you used that term before and actually I'm not familiar with that particular term. It's similar to scapegoating. Okay. Yeah. It's the same thing as like being a scapegoat. Yeah. So I, I started to develop separation anxiety for my mom when I was nine and started with me not being able to spend the night away from home. And then it changed to I would fall asleep in my bed at night, but then in the middle of the night, I would wake up and I would go change positions with my dad. I would go sleep in my bed with my mom and he would go sleep in my room. Mm. I'm sure that there was other stuff going on, but I think that one of the things that it was related to probably like a a year or two before this happened, one time when my dad was out of town, I woke up in the middle of the night and whenever my dad was out of town, I would go sleep in her bed in the middle of the night. That's what I would do. And so one day I woke up when he was out of town. And I walked into her room and the lights were still on and she had passed out downstairs. Mm. And so I had to drag her upstairs to bed. So I think that's like what it was connected to. But it was just this one day I woke up in the middle of the night. I was nine. Both of my parents were in town and like this horror set in and this panic. And I felt like I was going to die if I didn't sleep in bed with her that night. And so that went on for a few months. And then... After a few months of the, like them trying everything in the book to get me to sleep in my own bed with no success, they sent me to a therapist. And I remember asking my mom when I was a teenager, I'm like, did you ever tell the therapist that you were an alcoholic and that you and Chad fought all the time? And she was like, no, it didn't seem relevant. <laughs> exactly. And then I oh. didn't say anything to the therapist either because that's what it had modeled for me, right? Like right. one of the rules of a dysfunctional family is the don't talk rule. I didn't have to be told not to talk about it because that's just what I saw. So yeah, so I was labeled like the problem of the family then. But I think that part of it was like a cry for help. I think it was my attempt to try to save the family. It didn't work. My parents still fought. My mom still drank. But when I started to drink and I started to act out at 12, that worked. <laughs> My mom stopped drinking as much and my parents stopped fighting because they had to come together to deal with me. And that worked. And you know? That's a really and, good message. Not what it, you know, I want to say this sarcastically. That's a really good message to send, right? Oh, you act out and and we'll get better. Yeah. But then once I got sober, then their disease picks right back up. I have what, almost 13 years sober. It's interesting how at times over these last 13 years that they'll still try to put me in that position or try me as the scapegoat, which is hard. And that's the other thing. And I want to read this. So this is from the book I was telling you about, Emotional Sobriety. This is something that really hit home for me. Because as you know, just because somebody in the family seeks recovery does not mean that everybody else in the family will. So she says... 
Those in the system who have the clarity or courage to act as whistleblowers who attempt to reveal the truth of the family pathology may be perceived by the family, which is steeped in denial, as in some way problematic. Naming the dysfunctional behavior becomes the sin, not the dysfunctional behavior itself. These members may be cut off, humiliated, or even hated if they get too close to the truth, though much of this may be unconscious. Simply bringing up the family's problems causes other family members who cannot and will not see their own pathology to want to kill the messenger. Again, the message, the truth, threatens their survival as a system. Yeah, that's, that's my, tough. That's tough. Yeah, it is. It's like not conscious, right? It's like everything, like the way that these dysfunctional families, it's all about keeping the dysfunction alive and thriving. And most of it is not conscious, you know? What do you want to say? To the person who is where you were three years ago, 10 years ago. God. I just encourage anybody to read the laundry list traits. So those are like the 14 common characteristics of an adult child. I had a spiritual experience when I read that list. It was like, holy cow. So I highly recommend, you know, checking that out. I have listeners reach out to me who are in their adult child bottom or finally realizing that this is what's going on. I mean, honestly, I say I'm sorry, but I say I'm so excited for you because what will tra- like transpire as a result of this is fucking amazing. It's not easy. It takes time. Like the woman said, it'll take years to work through this shit. I will say that I started to notice differences pretty quickly, but the transformation that will occur will be mind-blowing. And this is how we unearth our true selves. This is how we figure out like who we are. We find our true selves. We find our higher selves and we can start living accordingly. This is the work. It's not only about healing, like I said, and as I've shared in my story, it's not just about healing. It's about healing in order to live a purposeful and meaningful life. And it's hard. And I guess I want to address a few things that commonly come up when it comes to starting to heal from your dysfunctional upbringing. So number one is like the issue of betrayal. People think that if they talk about this stuff, that is somehow betraying their parents. Here's the deal. It's not about that. Yes, we have to talk about it. We have to speak our truth. We have to name it. But it's not about throwing our parents under the bus. It is about identifying the causes and conditions that made us the way that we are today. We have to examine it and figure that shit out in order to stop living that way. But it's not about blaming our parents, especially because this is the disease of family dysfunction. This shit does not just pop out of nowhere. Like We must remember that our parents are just a product of their upbringing just as we are. So it's just so important. That doesn't mean that we give our parents a free pass or we blame ourselves. But when we blame, we block ourselves from healing. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the biggest concerns is like this issue of feeling like we're going to be betraying our parents. The other thing is we want to get better, but we don't want to feel the pain. Yes, unfortunately, (laughs) like this shit's going to hurt. It's going to be painful working through this stuff. I really feel like this is like the core wounds and the core issues that we have. And the good news is, is though that like you will get to the other side of pain and choosing not to to go through that pain is ultimately making a decision to live in perpetual pain. 
So just know that you can get to their side. And then the other thing is we think that we can do it alone and we can't. We have to have support. Like you can try. It's not going to work, you know, very well for you. It's like we say in the rooms, our best thinking got us here. Like like, you need support. You're fucking crazy. Like I'm just letting you know that. We need help. We're nuts. Like we need help. We need people that can help point things out for us, that can hold our hand as we're trudging the road. So yeah, it's just reaching out and asking for help. So those would be like just my my biggest things. And please, anyone, feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to hear from people. But I just want you to know if you're hitting your bottom right now, this is amazing. Be pumped because there is like some great shit headed your way and there's some real healing headed your way and it's all going to be worth it. Which leads me to how can people find you? You can find me. So my podcast is Adult Child. You can find out on any podcast thing. There's another one called The Adult Child Podcast. Mine's called Adult Child. That one's not in existence anymore. I'm on um, Instagram and TikTok at Adult Child Pod, uh, P-O-D. And um, you can email me. My website is adultchildpodcast.com. And you can also email me at andrea at adultchildpodcast.com. Please reach out. I seriously would love to hear from everyone. And and I will put all of that in the show notes for this episode at therecovery.show slash 367, 367. All right. We'll take a little break uh, from this intensity. Thank you for the intensity, Andrea. And we'll uh, talk about our lives in recovery. But first, always got the music. So you picked a song here. Yes. Running Down a Dream by Tom Petty. So I had this, it was kind of when an uh, adult child was born in my head. I was I was driving over the Golden Gate Bridge. I had just gone and met with a girl at a detox to talk to her specifically about these adult child issues. I remember the coconut LaCroix sitting in my cup holder. And I remember Tom Petty running down a dream came on. And all of a sudden it popped in my head like podcast. You need to do an adult child podcast. So, whoa. I love Tom Petty. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you, Tom. He was bringing me messages from the heavens above. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives and recovery. How have we experienced recovery this week? Just today, and this was coming up for me as you were talking, I had a conversation with a coworker who is, I'll say he's struggling emotionally. He tells me that he hears the things I say to him as negative and that this has been going on for a, a long time. That's hard for me to hear. It's hard for me to hear that, but also it's hard for me to hear because I recognize the truth in the way I've been interacting with him to some extent. So I don't know where that's going to go. How did you Um, respond? We talked about a couple of specific incidents because that always helps um, Mm -hmm. to get to this thing that happened. And in, in both cases, I recognized that my tone had been at best abrupt. That's the weasel word that we use when we don't want to say that we were actually like You're just being an asshole. <laughs> yeah, what you said. What I know is I'm a lot less so than I used to be. Okay. This is the progress, but I can still be an asshole. That's the not perfection part. I said, it would really be helpful to me and maybe to you 
if you would please let me know quickly when I've done that. Because it's, it helps me to correct my behavior when I can see it shortly after it happened, rather than having to dig back and say, what was I feeling? What was I doing? Why did this come out of me that way? So I don't know. It's a work in progress. And we're both, we're both acting out of our pain, our trauma to some extent. Yeah. So when he told you the specific examples, did you have any insights in that? Or could you identify maybe what was going on for you? One of my significant character defects, which definitely showed up in at least one of those, is impatience. And when I get impatient, I get short. Sometimes I get angry. And stuff comes out of my mouth that I wish it hadn't. I -hmm. don't always recognize it at the time. Mm -hmm. So there's that. There's that. Number one. The other thing, and, and this again, this is something that I'm processing have joined this new team in my church community and our charge, if you will, our charge is to help in several different ways, help the community be in what we call right relationship with each other. And I see that as a very positive thing that we are here to provide maybe Mm -hmm. education is not quite the word I want there, but workshops in diffusing conflict, workshops in being in conflict respectfully. These are some of the things that I think we, we can do. The other part of that is when people get into conflict within the community in a harmful way, to be there to help facilitate coming back into relationship. That's the way I see it. I just was invited into this group and I've had a couple of trainings. So that's, that's what I know so far. Another group of people within the congregation, and we're talking close to a thousand people. So there's lots of groups somehow sees this as at least from what they sent us a letter and said, here's our concern. And when I read that, I see people who are afraid that we're somehow going to be controlling them. They see this as a secret cabal that's going to force them to do certain things. And so I react emotionally to that. You're attacking me. You're imputing these motives to me that are not why I'm here. Luckily, I don't have to figure out how to respond to this all by myself. There's a whole group of us. And there are, there are people who I think are more spiritually fit than I am. They probably think I'm more spiritually fit than they are. So that makes us a good combination that we will, we will work through this. So there's a couple of things. <laughs> Living life in recovery at this point for these two things is like recognizing where I'm uncomfortable recognizing maybe a little bit about where that's coming from, which then helps me to find a path into out of, maybe I need to live in the discomfort for a while. That's also something that, that recovery teaches me that sometimes I'm not going to feel good right now. And that pain is going to lead to 
some gain, some gift down the road. And, and I just need to sit with it. We talk about awareness. I'm aware of this. Acceptance. Okay, what is this really? And then action rather okay. than reaction, which was my mode of living for so long. So yeah, recovery in the raw here, I guess. Sometimes I have these happy stories. Today, I just have stories of a little bit of uncertainty, but also knowledge that I can take this and I can turn it into something better because I've mm-hmm. done it. Mm-hmm. It has happened with the help of maybe my friends in the program with the help of a higher power. That's what I got. Yeah. For me, I, I feel like I always, sometimes it takes me a while to sit in the awareness <laughs> before I'm able to make the change, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. Yeah, for me, one thing is that I've started this, like a small support group of girls that are avid listeners of my podcast, and I do it once a week. And it's just been like really amazing to create that community, which has been great. And then I just recently found an online ACA meeting that I really love. And yeah, just so one of the one of the um, common themes and this is very much tied into kind of our greatest pain, our greatest gifts, and also me starting the podcast is just synchronicities, right? That there's just so many things that have occurred that it's so clear, like why they were supposed to occur. And I had something similar happen when I was just at this meeting on, on Sunday night and there was a guy in there and he mentioned that he was, he was in Jacksonville, Florida. And that's where I got sober. And I lived there for five years before I moved out here to San Francisco. So then we ended up connecting on that and started chatting. And then we talked afterwards and I shared my podcast with him. And I think he's been going to be able to help me out with some stuff that I was looking for some assistance with. Mm-hmm. And so it was just like very divinely inspired. It just, I just love that. And I have those experiences multiple times a week where it's just, oh, like we were, our paths were supposed to cross. And I just love those experiences. And I think we all have those opportunities if we're just like open, if we're just open to experience yeah. i have them quite often just because i talk to everyone <laughs> i can't imagine yeah <laughs> what i want to share so this is one of my favorite stories of just like randomly talking to somebody so i was i was on the bus i was on my way home from work and it was packed bus and so i'm sitting next to this guy he's like a black gentleman he's probably in his 50s he's wearing like a construction vest but what was most interesting about him was that i could see that he was on a dating app on his phone i looked of course and and I could see that he was messaging with a woman and that she had said to him, like, how do you describe yourself as a person? And so he's sitting there and he's thinking about what he's going to say. And so, of course, I do what nobody would ever fucking do. I turned to him and I said, I'm sorry, I can't help myself. What are you going to say? <laughs> and he says, I'm going to tell her the truth. And he goes, and this is the truth, too. So he scrolls up to the message that he had sent to her right before she asked him to describe himself. And what he had said was, Before we go any further, I just want to let you know that in July of 2018, I got out of prison after serving 28 years. And so the first thing that I said to him was, her response to you is so weird. Like she literally responded to that with, how do you describe yourself as a person? She didn't say what for or anything, which was rather weird. I was like, is this a robot? And so then I said, do you mind me asking, was it for murder? And he was like, yeah. And he told me that when he was 14, he had joined a gang. And when he was 19, his mother was a, an addict. His father was in prison. And my mother was an alcoholic. My dad was an absent workaholic. And that when he was 19, he was convicted of a double homicide. He didn't pull the trigger, but he had orchestrated it. And that he was initially sentenced to the death penalty. And that a year and a half into his sentence, that was overturned. And he said that was the moment that he knew that his life was safe for a reason. And he got his GED. He got his bachelor's. He became an addiction counselor in, in the prison. Hmm. And after 28 years, he was released. 
And he already had two jobs, his own car, his own apartment. And he was just like the most amazing. His name is Marvin. And so then when it got to my stop, he got off the stop with me. And that's when he told me that his stop had actually been several stops before, but he stayed on to keep talking to me. And I just gave him a hug and we exchanged like Facebook stuff. And it was just such a beautiful experience of what can happen. Like I'll always remember Marvin. Wow. That is so not me. Yeah. I get on the bus, I put my earbuds in and I look straight ahead. (laughs) I'm looking at people's phones and then telling them what I'm looking at. But I think that there's something about me that for some reason people feel comfortable sharing. I don't know what it is, but that's also why I wanted to create the podcast. (laughs) I, I think it's your openness. I do. All right. I have no idea what I'm going to do next week, next show. So if you've got a thing you're burning to talk about, call me up, email me, and we'll set a time and we'll talk about it because you're in the driver's seat. We do welcome your ideas, your thoughts. Please join our conversation. Leave us a voicemail. Send us an email with your feedback, with your questions, with your experience, strength, and hope. And And Andrea, how can people do that? You can call and leave us a voicemail, or rather, not me, but answer. (laughs) Sorry. No, it's the editorial we. You can call him and leave (laughs) him a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You guys, you don't even need to have a phone. You can also send a voice memo or email to feedback at therecovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience of strength and hope or your questions about today's topic of the gift of pain and any of upcoming topics, including... To be determined. Yeah. If you have a topic that you'd like us to talk about, let him know. If you would like advance notice for some of our topics so that you can contribute to that topic, you can sign up for his mailing list by sending an email to feedback at recovery.show. Put email in the subject line to make it easier to spot. And our website, which is, as you probably have guessed by now, therecovery.show. We have all the information about the show, which includes notes for each episode, including this one, which will be at therecovery.show slash 367. Links to the books. And uh, yeah, I think it was mostly books that, that were read from today or that we talked about. Videos for the music that Andrea chose and some links to other recovery podcasts. And I am definitely going to add a link to Adult Child. Check it out. Start an episode one, please. Each episode will blow off each other. Okay. And the best way to share the recovery show with a friend is refer them to the website because then they can hit the subscribe link and subscribe on whatever app you've got that you listen to your podcasts on. You can stand on the street corner and hold a sign telling people to listen to it. You could do that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll take a, a short break before listening to your feedback. Our second musical selection, which is also available on the website, is what? Selma Houston, Don't Leave Me This Way. And this is more of a joke, but I just think about all the times that I would be ending these relationships with losers or emotionally unavailable alcoholics. Don't leave me this way. Don't you understand? I'm at your command. Now it's a joke, but yes. We can really, just a reminder, if you're having that strong of a reaction to a relationship that's less than a month, you might be an adult child. 
it's time to hear from you. D writes, Hi Spencer, I want to tell you how very grateful I am for you and your show. I've had a difficult month trying to get myself to face some realities that I just don't want to face. And as I got out of my car to go into work today, the theme of episode 347 popped into my head. I am my problem, I thought. And that's good news, because if I weren't, there would be no solution. I listened to that episode months ago, but the content has clearly been held in my heart until I was ready to hear it. This concept is helping me to see that. My problem is not my qualifier. My problem is me not trusting and honoring myself. My problem is not my qualifier's behavior. My problem is my tendency to focus on their action or reaction rather than focusing on my own behavior. My problem is not my qualifier's perception of me. My problem is me thinking that I can change their perception of me. This brought me all the way back to step one and the realization that I cannot control the behavior, words, or perceptions of another person. I cannot will that person to see things the way I do or to act in a way that feels compassionate and kind. As I heard in a meeting this week, the hardware store does not sell fruit salad, so stop going to the hardware store to find fruit salad. Thank you for all that you do and share. It is life-saving work. D. in North Carolina, grateful member of Al-Anon since April 2018. Thanks, D. for sharing that. I love the my problem is not statements. Those are very good. Ashley writes, Hi, Spencer. You had a listener write in about sharing with program members the Recovery Show podcast. They had experienced some pushback about this not being truly Al-Anon and shouldn't be shared at a meeting. The statement you made about not sharing it during the meeting, I definitely agree with. Our meeting has a reading at the opening that goes along these lines. Please do not interrupt the person speaking or comment on what is being said. You'll have an opportunity after the meeting to speak with whomever you wish. I've seen variations on this at other meetings. To me, this says that after the closing has been read, the meeting is done. This is when I can go speak with people about what they share or any other topic, even if it's not Al-Anon related. The meeting is no longer running, therefore I feel that the meeting before the meeting or the meeting after the meeting is not under Al-Anon guidelines. This is when I share about the recovery show all the time, as it is a recovery tool in my toolbox and may be for someone else if they choose to pick it up. However, every member is entitled to their opinion and not everyone will agree and some may see the situation differently. Group conscience could be held, but that can only decide on items within the meeting, not after it closes. Sincerely, Ashley from Alberta. Thank you, Ashley. Peggy says, Hi, Spencer. Thank you so much for the recovery show. It is such a huge support to me as I work the program. In episode 365, In All Our Affairs, at about the 20-minute mark, Eric talks about a symptom of his disease, which is feeling the need to over-prepare for everything. You acknowledged that trait and said, Wasn't there a meeting about that last week? This is a big topic for me and in my conversations with my sponsor. Thanks for putting a pin in that challenge. Was there some literature or other resource you knew of that addresses the challenge? Thank you a million, Peggy. You know, Peggy, I think that topic came from a personal share at the beginning of a meeting. I don't think the person who was sharing cited any literature. I think that where I might go in the literature is where... We talk about self-discovery, so maybe the inventory and about asking our higher power to help us change step seven and maybe step six as well. 
those are the, the topics that occur to me with regards to uh, changing that behavior, I guess. Yeah. Becoming aware and then changing. Heather writes, hi, Spencer and co-hosts. Actually, she didn't say hi. I came across your podcast about two and a half to three years ago. My partner suggested looking into Al-Anon podcasts or groups. I met him when he was a few years into his recovery. Your insight and knowledge has been so tremendously helpful, I can't even begin to express my gratitude. My partner and I parted ways earlier this year, and while we may not be together, I still find myself drawn to your podcast for help as I wade through life. I have codependency issues due to a family history of alcoholism. Thank you for the intro to CODA. I have found so much insight into why things were the way they were growing up and why certain family members act the way they do. It's helped me to cope with them and learn how to handle them while disengaging myself from the dysfunction they create. I hope that it's okay that I still listen even though my partner and I are no longer together. I will forever be grateful to him for all the things I've learned about recovery and myself. Take care and keep doing the wonderful things you do. Heather M. Well, thanks, Heather, for writing and... You can listen for whatever reason you want to listen for. Catherine writes, I just found and listened intently to podcast 355. This story was like hearing myself tell the story of my 30-year-old son. I'm almost at a loss to explain how gratifying and at the same time how sad it made me feel. To have this horrible disease overtake your child is almost paralyzing. I struggle with detachment and this narrative was so helpful. I have learned to love my son from a distance because the addict that has overtaken his sense of self has left him a shell of his former being. I wish he would return because I miss the person he used to be. I pray every day for his sobriety. I very much appreciate this particular podcast and the courage it took to retell, relive, and reopen such heartbreak. Thank you. And for those of you who don't remember exactly what episode 355 was, it was titled A Son's Addiction. Jacob was the guest telling the story of, of his relationship with his son and his recovery. Roberta left us a couple of voicemails here. Hey, Spencer and co-host. I just had to call in on the Al-Anon after divorce episode that you and Pat did together. And oh my gosh, I was listening to it again because there was so much that resonated with me the first time around. And I just couldn't get it all in my head because I feel like she and I had so many similar experiences, married at 23. I didn't know how to do life on life terms like I do now. And I was young and my ex-husband was eight years older than me. And after our first child, I had personal issues in our sexual reason, let's go there, after labor that no doctor seem to understand. So I kept getting accused of having an affair. And I also never knew until probably years later that could have been possibly a tipping point or it was probably alcoholism was starting to creep into our home and had no clue. I was always definitely the doormat in our conversations. And I also felt I shut down. I completely shut down whenever we had our quote unquote, we need to talk discussion. It was him talking to me about finances and I'm not doing enough. My career doesn't make enough and I need to just stay home with our kid and I need to take care of the house. And I, and it, I felt like I always got berated for never doing enough. 
So I always step down. And it's just so interesting to see now today. I still, granted, we're very good friends. By the grace of his higher power, he found his own sobriety. And and we co-parent and we're blessed to have two grandchildren and we co-grandparent together very well. So sometimes I go back to those childlike behaviors of just shutting down words like I need to tell him something and oh, I'm going to get I'm going to get crap for doing this. Get, get over yourself. You're an adult. You have the right to do these things and you have a child together and he needs to be responsible for that child too because it's his child. And if not, you can make arrangements for her. Anyways, I'm just so enjoying this episode because there is life after divorce and there's also life after living with an alcohol, an active alcoholic. Hi, Spencer. It's Roberta from Campbell, California. Hey, I'm calling in regard to C's email in regard to in all our charity for recovery with teens. I would absolutely recommend for reaching out to the Betty Ford Center in Rancho Mirage. They have an amazing program. I was able to take my at that time, eight year old to that, or she might have even been seven. And it was unbelievable. So I highly recommend her reaching out to them. Thanks so much for everything you do. Have an amazing day. Bye, Spencer. Thank you, Roberta, for sharing your experience and about recovery for children. Anna writes, Hi, Spencer and Shannon. I want to thank you both so much for this incredible episode. Shannon, your story absolutely blew me away and resonated with me profoundly. I've been in Illinois for years, but I never really knew about the ACA program. Today is my fifth day in a row of going to a daily ACA online meeting and reading the ACA meditation of the day, which is now waiting in my email when I awake. I've ordered the ACA literature and eagerly await the arrival. Thank you for your service, and please know this episode has triggered a major breakthrough in my recovery. I am forever grateful. Spencer, I've loved this podcast for a couple of years. It is life-changing. I thank my higher power for putting you on this earth in your podcast on my life path. Sending light and love to you both. Thanks, Anna. Uh, and for those of you, again, who are wondering, that was episode 364, titled Fear of Abandonment. And thank you again, Shannon, for doing that episode with me. Marilyn says, Dear Spencer, thank you for your service to family and friends of alcoholics and addicts. We have had people finding our secular Al-Anon group after listening to your podcast. I want to let you know that we are now registered as an electronic group with the World Service Office. So our email address has changed to anyfaithornoneafg at gmail.com. I'll put that email address into the show notes here. I have also updated the email address in the online meetings page at therecovery.show slash online. And Marilyn continues, it would be much appreciated if you could update the address on your website, which I did. We are still monitoring the other address, but it is now attached to our in-person meeting. Of course, it's the electronic meeting of any faith or none that people on the internet will be able to attend. We are excited to have WSO start a virtual area for all of the online groups that formed and want to continue beyond the pandemic. We look forward to maintaining our connections and eventually meeting each other at in-person conferences someday. That includes you and your fellow podcasters. You've given us all another way to be together in these tough times, and together we can make it. Take care and be well with love and peace in the program, Marilyn I. in Lawrence, Kansas, and on the Internet. 
So thanks, Marilyn, for updating us. And uh, for those of you who are looking for the secular Al-Anon group, email anyfaithornoneafg at gmail.com or look in the show notes at therecovery.show slash 367 or look in the online meetings page at therecovery.show slash online. Or you can search for it at the WSOalanon.org website, I'm sure. Lots of ways to find it. Matt writes, Hi, Spencer. I found your podcast just a couple of weeks ago after going to my local Al-Anon meeting site. There was a sign on the door saying that meetings are still only digital, but someone had posted a printout recommending the podcast on the door. I thought I would give it a whirl and have been binge listening ever since. It has been an oasis and a voice of calm and comfort in my ear through many hard days and nights. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it and have learned from it. I've been feeling profoundly overwhelmed and depressed for a long time now. My partner, the alcoholic in my life, has three DUIs in seven years, all of them involving her crashing her vehicle and blowing extremely high blood alcohols, and is now facing the reality that she will have to plead guilty to felony DUI in New York State and enter five years of felony probation. If during that time she messes up even once, she will go straight to prison for two to three years, as her lawyer has told her repeatedly. Her next court date isn't one month, after which she will have to get very real about her sobriety or face the consequences. Despite all this, she continues to drink heavily and regularly. She recently was fired from her job due to drinking on the job and leaving mid-shift, and she lost her previous two jobs in one way or another due to drinking, as well. For a long time, I policed her drinking and threw out any I found, but now, in large part due to Al-Anon, I have stepped away from that, recognizing it as a fool's errand, since she just gets sneakier about where and how to hide it. She has also treated me very poorly during her blackout drinking binges, cheating on me multiple times and constantly having a merry-go-round of men pursuing her, usually because she gave them her number while drunk, which she excuses away by saying that she was too drunk to even remember any of it. I'm at the end of my rope. I know I am the classic enabler and caregiver and I'm making all the wrong choices, but I love her deeply when she is sober and know that her family and friends have all written her off and refused to help her anymore, or else are in complete denial about the severity of her drinking. So if I throw her out of the house, she will have literally nowhere to go, and of course, without a car or license, she can't even drive herself away. As a caregiver, throwing her to the streets like that goes against every molecule of my being and feels like a callous and cruel act, even though I know that is not a rational response. She has finally acknowledged that she is an alcoholic and should probably be in treatment, but is now using every possible excuse not to go, from her dog getting knee surgery to wanting to wait until colder weather so she can enjoy the summer at least. At this point, I find myself secretly wishing she does blow her probation so that she is forced to go to prison and perhaps find treatment there. In any case, I know you probably can't offer much specific advice, but I just needed to share with someone who can understand it. And thank you again for your podcast, which has actually helped me inch toward a decision that protects and honors my own needs for once. If any of your listeners have had similar experiences, perhaps they can offer a little hard-earned wisdom. Matt S. Yeah, Matt, that is that is not an easy place to be. Thanks for writing, Matt. Yeah, there are definitely people out there who probably have been almost exactly where you are. My situation didn't get as severe my i should say my wife's situation get didn't get as severe as yours but there were times when i thought it would definitely be better for her to be gone when she was away in treatment 
I found a real respite. So I totally understand this feeling that, man, I just wish she'd blow it and get put away for a while. That's where this disease can take us. So it sounds like you're coming to a place of making a decision how to take care of yourself and wish you the best in whatever decision that is. Lorraine left us a share about honesty. Hi, Spencer. Thank you so much for your wonderful giving of your time and talent to this podcast. It is fantastic and such a great resource. My name is Lorraine. I have about eight months in Al-Anon, and I heard your podcast today. And at the end, you asked for feedback about honesty, and I immediately thought of a really good share that I could share. And then I thought, no, I better not. I might be too new to the program or people may already know this information. And then, lo and behold, the next thing you said was there was feedback from someone that we need more new people chiming in. So here goes. I recently got into a relationship that is wonderful and loving, and he is also in Al-Anon. One of the biggest things that came up right away was honesty. I always considered myself to be an extremely honest person, very truthful, you know, never misleading people, always having a lot of integrity. And then I realized as I was confronted, I realized two things. The first thing was I was lying about things that didn't make any sense to lie about. And I had to examine why am I lying about this? And on top of that, why do I feel absolutely terrified when my partner pulls out the AA big book and shows me the section on honesty? So, of course, I had to talk to my sponsor. I had to think about it and pray about it. And then a few weeks later, someone shared in a meeting that you lie about the things that you're most ashamed of. The bigger the lie, the bigger the shame. And I thought, oh, my God. That is God speaking right to me. These are the things that I lie about that oftentimes it makes no sense. Why would I lie? Of course, it's to cover up shame. And that really unlocks a lot of truth for me as I examine my life. The other point I was going to make is that I am a, I'm a extrovert, yellow temperament for on the Enneagram, which means I tend to hyperbolize. And that's another form that can get me into trouble of, of dishonesty. It feels natural. These types of people, including myself, have a propensity to be flowery and creative and dreamy. And you probably know people like that. They sort of live like I do in a little bit of a dream and a fantasy. I really had to check myself. I started out by saying, oh, man, that's, I think there were like a 100 of those. And then I go, oh, I'm sorry. I was hyperbolizing. Oh, there were probably about 10. And I started checking myself very quickly. With my type of personality, I can use that as an excuse. I can say, oh, it's just in my personality. I'm a sort of visionary and I didn't really mean that. But I recognize how many times that has gotten me into trouble. And people start to slightly distrust what I say. And then it may not be overt, but subconsciously, unconsciously, they start to really question even when I'm telling straight up facts. And it was a big life lesson for me. And I'm very grateful to Al-Anon and to that person that said that in that meeting and to my fiance who did not demand honesty, but said, hey, if you're living your best life and you want to be in a relationship with me, 
this is the only way we can live. So I really appreciate that topic and thank you again for everything that you do. Thanks for sharing, Lorraine. Thanks. Alyssa writes, I have casually listened to the podcast for the last several months, but I've spent the last few days binge listening during a time of crisis. Most of that time was spent listening to this episode. She's talking about the episode with Roberta about teen depression and self-harm. She continues, most of that time was spent listening to this episode. It took a long time to listen to it because I had to pause it to cry and process so many times. Roberta's story is my story in so many ways. I've been in Illinois for many years, and my teen daughter was hospitalized last week due to risk of harm to self or others caused by severe anxiety. It has been such a devastating time, and like Roberta, I have found the tools and resources of the program invaluable. Thanks to both Spencer and Roberta for this episode in particular that has helped me process my feelings, feel like I'm not alone or a terrible parent, and provide me with additional program tools. Quotes, whatever your problems, there are those of us who have had them too. Alyssa, I'm glad that that episode was helpful to you. That's why we're here, because, yeah, whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. And part of my job here is to bring those voices to the people who need to hear them. Thanks for writing. Andrea, what is your, your last song selection for this episode? Doctor My Eyes by Jackson. The song is, at least my interpretation, is a guy who has experienced a lot of strife and pain throughout his life, and he's finally seeking treatment, but he's afraid that it's too late. And I just want to let you know, guys, that it is never too late. That is just a way that your disease, whatever it is, preventing you from seeking recovery. So another sneaky way that the disease is trying to keep you sick. Thank you for listening and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode or contact me. I don't know, whatever. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.